So today's message is titled, Pernicious Influences. Pernicious, influ- pernicious Influences. Uh, it's part one. So even though I have two hours to preach, I'm not going to uh, do that. No. Uh, but we're just going to split it up. So we'll pick it up back up next week and complete it next week. Let me define... Um, I just sometimes I find that to be helpful, define the words of the title even. Influence, influence. The definition of influence as a noun is the power or capacity of causing an effect on the character, development, or behavior of someone or something. You probably already knew that. You probably already knew that, but I wanted to, to get that out there. It's the power or capacity of causing an effect on the character development or behavior of someone or something. Pernicious, adjective, definition. So it defines the influences here. Pernicious, highly injurious or destructive. Also, having a harmful effect, especially in a gradual or subtle way. An example of this would be rust. Rust is pernicious. Hopefully that gives you uh, an image you can have in your head. So I was, and that's what we're going to be looking at, and that's what we'll be talking about over the next couple of weeks. So I was thinking about the pernicious influences that surround us and how, in our world, and how moms and dads worry about their children because they don't want to see them led into ruin by, by those harmful influences. Yes? And of course, the concern is magnified for parents as it becomes harder to prevent or limit those influences as the children grow older and have more and more contact with the world. Yeah? And while parents may be tempted to move their children to a deserted island (laughs) or get away from our sinful society by moving into an underground bunker, I remember that temptation. While they may be tempted that way, that really isn't practical on one level. Nor is it the Lord's will for his people. That's not the Lord's will for his people. Jesus' prayer for his disciples in John 17, verse 15, goes like this. He's praying for them. To the Father, his Father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one, which immediately implies that there's going to be that issue, that they're going to encounter the evil one, that they're going to be tempted by the evil one, that they're going to have to face the evil one because they are going to remain in the world. And of course, we know in that section of John, he's not just praying for his disciples that were there on the earth at the time with him, 
but he extends this prayer to all. In verse 20, it says, I do not ask for these only of John 17, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which would include us as well, if we are believing. I do not ask that you take them out of this world, but why, Jesus? Why? This place is dangerous. Incredibly dangerous. Not just on a physical level, but more importantly, on a spiritual level. Well, one reason, beloved, would be the Great Commission. Right? Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations on that little island I put you on so that you would stay safe. Right? So, God has saved us and then left us for his good purposes in a very dangerous world. But he has not left us alone. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He gave us his apostles. And he promises to go with us as we go along for him in this world. And similar to the way parents find themselves concerned about their children, Paul was deeply concerned about the church in the same way, in a very similar way, as if they were his children. And in fact, in 2 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29, one translation of the Bible puts that passage this way. Besides everything else, and you should check it out because everything else was a lot that he just got through talking about, like being imprisoned and tortured and beaten and going without and not sleeping, all in the course of pursuing Christ and making him known to the world and facing the dangers of this world. He says, besides everything else, every day I am concerned about all the churches. It is a very heavy load. That's in the NIRV translation of the Bible. He says, if anyone is weak, Likely he means weak in faith. I feel weak. If anyone is led into sin, I burn on the inside. Why was Paul concerned? Why, did, why was he concerned every day for the churches that, that he had been planting in his missionary endeavors? and encouraging and strengthening and instructing. Why was he concerned every day? Because danger seems to lurk around every corner for the church, for Christians. We are in a spiritual war. Do you believe that? I've asked you this question before, but do you believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? Because if you believe that, then you're going to have a different attitude and approach to life. We are in a, a spiritual war. 
with the devil. Not a, not a weak foe, friends. He's both the enemy of God and the enemy of his people. And he never suspends his assault on the church. He is relentless. And so, as we find in other places in the scriptures, in our text today, Paul is speaking about another attack of the enemy. In this case, I'm I'm calling it a, a pernicious influence One that plagued the church, the ancient church. So we're going to begin to take a look at it, see what Paul said, see how he dealt with it, because there's plenty of these kind of influences plaguing the church today as well, plaguing you, Christian, seeking to put you off course or move you away from what matters most. We're going to look at that, and then we're going to do a little bit of application today, and then I'm going to come back next week. We're going to hit it again. We're going to pick up whatever we didn't get this time, and we're going to make some more application to ourselves, all right? That's the intro. You ready? You sure? All right. Let's read this awesome text. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, reading through verse 21. Brothers, and remember... That word can be translated brothers and sisters. He's not just talking to the guys or the male Christians. Brothers and sisters, talking to the church, written to the church of Philippi, join in imitating me. Paul's writing. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's our passage. It's a good one. It's a good one. Verse 17. Paul starts off by calling upon the entire church to join in imitating him. Or to join, one translation puts it this way, to join with others, that would be other Christians, to join with others in following his example. All right. In the context of this letter, and for that matter, other letters, New Testament epistles written by Paul, but 
certainly in the context of this letter, Paul's example that he calls upon the church at Philippi to follow is the example, and I just thought of all the things as I read through the letter that I could think of that would help describe that example. So here we go. It is the example of a Christ-centered, Christ-directed, Christ-exalting life. A life desiring. Here's his example. This is his pattern that he's calling upon the church to follow, to imitate, a life desiring more and more of Christ. That's his life. Desiring a deeper union with and relationship with Christ. A life lived in pursuit of Christ. For the honor of Christ. A life lived with the goal of progressively becoming more like Christ, a life, beloved, that cares about the same things that Christ cares about. Yeah? That loves and longs for what Christ loves and longs for, that life. That's the life. That's the Christian life Paul is calling upon the church at Philippi, to join others in, join him and join others who have followed that pattern. That's the life, a life marked by devotion and dedication to Christ. You getting a theme here? A life impacted and transformed in every way by the divine and most amazing person and saving work of Jesus Christ. A life given to making Christ known to the world. A life of sacrificially serving Christ. A life increasingly manifesting the perfect righteousness of Christ. A life worthy of the gospel of Christ. As Paul stated in chapter one, and I think you could find all those themes with me as you're reading through the letter. Look for them. They're there. That example is there. That pattern is there. Very personal letter by the apostle Paul. Really reveals a lot of personal things about himself and his thoughts and his life. And, it, and what you see is Christ but in chapter 1, verse 21, there he says it this way. We could just sum it up. For to me to live is, yeah. From that sermon, when I did a sermon on that section, which was that passage, which was included in the sermon on 118 through 126, I titled that message, To Live as Christ, To Die as Gain. That's what Paul said. I said this, one writer said, the foundation, center, purpose, direction, power, and meaning of Paul's life is Christ. (laughs) 
For Paul, the purpose of living, this writer says, is pressing forward to know and serve Christ each day. And then he says this, when the goal of living is Christ, then living inevitably follows the way of Christ. The way of Christ. Is that you? And hey, I want to say something, okay? I want to say something. Well, I'm already saying something, so I want to say something else. (sighs) You know, I read all that and uh, just realize that it's not perfection in these things that we're talking about either because Paul himself says he's still pressing on. He hasn't yet arrived. It's not perfection, it's direction. That's his direction. That's where he's going. And he's been going that way since Christ got a hold of him and saved him and opened his eyes to the glory that is Christ. And so he's growing more and more in all of those things. Is that you? Is that you? As I said before, you know, sometimes we can hold the apostle Paul up as Super Christian. And yet, I wouldn't do that. But even if you want to do that, then okay. But then I guess he's calling you to be super Christian. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that of him. I would just say this is a man whose heart has been captured by Christ. Who understands his salvation, really. Who has been changed and is being changed by his salvation. And transform. And he calls other regenerated men and women to the very same thing. Philippians 3.17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. All right? So church, follow my example. Imitate my pattern of life as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, is what Paul is saying. And keep your eyes on, watch carefully, pay special attention to, learn from, be influenced by, Follow the example of those, those, there it is in the text, those, those other Christians, all right? No doubt they're in their midst. It's hard to really keep my eyes on someone, especially in that culture. There's no internet. No, I can't YouTube people. I can't do any of that. How am I going to keep my eyes on someone unless... I can want, I'm up close and personal, right? So no doubt those in their midst. Keep your eyes on them, learn from them, be influenced by those other Christians in your midst who live according to the pattern you have in us or that we gave to you, we, us. Who's that? Probably Paul and Timothy. I mean, 
Certainly Paul and Timothy. Since the letter came, was coming from them. And they knew both of them. And they had both invested their lives into this church. So not only Paul, but Timothy as well. And by the way, it makes sense that Timothy would have the same pattern of life because he was mentored by Paul. (laughs) And I I think it's safe to say that those who walk according to Paul's example would certainly include, uh, I certainly hope so, would include the leaders of that congregation or, or the elders, if you will, the pastors, the shepherds, right? I think it would certainly include them. They're continually exhorted to be examples to the flock, to live in a certain way, in the same way that Paul lived or carried out his Christianity. But beloved, that those Paul speaks of here is certainly not restricted to the elders or pastors of the church. You notice he doesn't say that. Hey, now look, follow the example of your elders there, the pastors there who walk according to the same pattern that you've seen in us. It doesn't say that. While the elders of the church better be an example, if not, they need to step down. The text isn't calling them out specifically. It's just saying, you church. (laughs) And it talks about the others. That means just other Christians without a special title like elder, other Christians. You get me? I just think sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, I mean, if you're an elder of the church, of course, you got you to gotta toe the line, man. You got to walk a certain way. You got to really live for Christ. That's true. Okay, that's true. What about you? <laughs> you think that's not for you as well? And I'm not, I'm not suggesting you do. I'm just asking. Do you think that's not for you? I've often told people that you want to you wanna know what you're, pursuit should be look at the list of qualifications for elders other than the fact that you must be a male so if you're a woman don't do this okay but all the character qualifications not the gender and not the gifting of teaching per se look at the character qualifications for an elder of the church one that's supposed to care for the people of God and be an example to them look at those they should be true of you or you should be straining toward them being true of you. Okay. You with me? But why is Paul, listen, so that's nice. Paul's calling them to to model him and, and to keep their eyes on those that also model him, that have the same pattern of Christian life. And as I said, What model is that? It's a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, Christ-honoring, Christ-pursuing life. That's the life. That's the model. That's the pattern. More of Christ, less of me. More of Christ, more of Christ, less of me. More glory to Christ, more honor to Christ. Yeah? Why is Paul urging his readers? And, 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 I, and, I, and I think specifically, even more specifically, one who's living the way of Christ, right? There's some things that they're doing, beloved. There's some things that they're doing if they're following after Christ. One of those things would be uh, saying no to sin. 
repeatedly. Putting away the old man and living in this newness of life that they have in Christ. Pursuing the righteousness of Christ. Not working against Christ and and what he came to accomplish, which is the eradication of your sin. But working in line with his purposes in your life. Yeah? It it would be a, a life in pursuit of holiness is another way to say it. So why is Paul urging his readers here? Why is he doing this? Listen, why is he urging his readers here to follow his Christian example and to keep their eyes, keep their eyes on or watch carefully those Christians who likewise live out their faith, who are there that they can see that they're up close and personal and I can learn from them and I can be influenced by them. They're little Pauls, if you will, and Paul is a little Christ, a follower of. Because, beloved, he was concerned about the pernicious influence of a significant number of folks, many, that had identified as Christians. Hold your thought. or who had professed to be or claimed to be Christians, but behaved in such a way that Paul referred to them as enemies of the cross of Christ. That should shock you. It should be shocking. Because it's meant to be. Paul meant to be shocking. Look back at the text. Philippians 3. Verse 18, you see the word for? What did he just do? Follow my example. Imitate me. Keep a close eye on those who follow the same pattern of life that you saw in us, that we showed to you. Why am I telling you this? For, because many, many of whom I have often told you, so this isn't the first time, I'm coming back to it again, And now tell you even with tears, the only place in the scriptures where Paul talks about him crying. Even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their Belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. One writer says, although Paul has warned the Philippian Christians about them on a number of occasions previously, he has to remind them of the dangers again and does so with intense grief because of his deep concern about the perilous condition. These people are dangerous. Their condition is dangerous. Of these enemies and their threat to the congregations where they were active. I agree with most commentators. We don't, I, I would take the position they weren't part of the body. 
but because that would, it would be hard to understand the rest of the letter if these guys were actually part of that fellowship. But they're around. They're making uh, contact. They're making their, their, their ideas and their views known in one way or another. So I just said this. I just said these folks profess to be or claim to be Christians. But why did I say that? Because as you can see, if you're paying attention, and I trust you are, the text doesn't say that, does it? The text doesn't say that, does it? Paul obviously knew who they were, and so did the Philippians. But it is not made crystal clear to us in the passage. However, that they are professing Christians is the view of the Bible scholars I referenced as I studied this passage, and I agree with that view because I believe that makes the most sense of the passage. Why do I say that? Because, beloved, the implications of the text are that the folks in question, these enemies of the cross, are a competing model for Christian existence. That's the implication. Or a competing model for Christian living. It's like this. Look at the way we walk. We, Paul and others who walk in the same way we walk. Look at them. Follow me. Pay attention to those guys around you who do the same things I'm doing, who think the same way, who are in pursuit of Christ, who are living for Christ, who desire to be transformed by Christ, changed by Christ, to walk in newness of life. Do that, do that, do that. That's Christianity. Do not go the way of looking at those who are walking this way and yet professing to be followers of Christ. They are not. They are enemies of the cross of Christ. If these folks, if these folks are not professing Christians that he's talking about, okay, let me just show you the logic, but instead pagans, because what other option would there be? All right? Pagans. Let's just say, because there's, you know, pagans, meaning they followed after other gods. Because the whole culture was religious. You didn't have really atheists. You just, you had pagans who served all kinds of different gods. And then you had Christianity who served the one and only true God. Okay? Generally speaking. So if these folks are not professing Christians but instead pagans, then this section doesn't make good sense. In that case, listen, Paul would be saying something like this. Hey, listen, church. I feel I need to exhort you to join in imitating me. Uh, join in following my Christian example. And listen, I want you to keep your eyes on or, or pay special attention to those Christians around you there in Philippi, there in your congregation who follow the same pattern of life that you have seen in me and Timothy. And why am I telling you this? Well, like I've told you before, and now I tell you even with tears, those Gentile pagans all around you, they are not really one of us. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. That doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, 
yeah, Paul, we came out of paganism. We, uh, we get it. Like, why? What's the, I'm confused. You see? It doesn't make sense. The reason he's writing and the reason he's saying the things he's saying and the reason it's so dangerous and the reason I call it a pernicious influence is because these are folks who are professing to be followers of Christ, professing to believe in Jesus, and yet their lifestyle betrays them or proves otherwise. One writer adding to this says, it is unlikely that Paul would have been moved to tears because of the misrepresentations of the gospel by unbelievers. I mean, of course, that's what unbelievers do. Of course, unbelievers are enemies of the cross of Christ. You don't have to point that out even. We understand. With tears, he says, makes better sense of the apostle's grief over those claiming to be believers, though he is also clearly concerned about the damage being done to the churches and the potential damage at Philippi through their activities. One writer says this, we know that Paul was talking about people who circulated among the churches professing to be Christians, not about pagans or outsiders. Paul would not have been so deeply disturbed as to warn them with tears about such licentious behavior among the heathen since he knew that heathens live for sensual pleasure in the things of the earth. We'll get to that, but that's what he's describing when he goes on to describe these enemies of the cross Paul was upset because these people made claim of being Christian but didn't live as Christians, thus causing great confusion both in the church and outside. These folks grossly misrepresented Christianity or what it really means to be a Christian or to be a follower of Christ. You with me? All right. So what kind of professing Christians were they? Because that there's, that's debated. Some commentators think they were Judaizers or the very same group that Paul warned the church about earlier in chapter three in verse two, which we've already covered, where he said, look out for the dogs, <laughs> Incredible insult uh, to the Judaizers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And even there, he never says Judaizers, but we know what he's talking about. The clues are enough that we know he's talking about Judaizers. And again, um, some commentators just think, well, I think he's still talking about them. Others think that there are a different group of, they are a different group of professing Christians who could be labeled as antinomians, antinomians, or as one commentator uh, labels them, moral libertinist, moral libertinist. In fact, a very good commentary for the whole of the Bible, the Expositor's Bible Commentary, the EBC, it titles this section of Philippians, or verses 17 through 21, the title, the heading it gives for this section is The Antinomian Danger. I am persuaded the group Paul is talking about are antinomians. 
in nature. Why? Because simply, beloved, I think it's a somewhat of a stretch, at least in my assessment, to make Paul's description of these people fit with the Judaizers or the Jews who had professed to be Christians, but remember they added to the gospel. Remember it was Jesus plus. And so they said it's not enough just to trust and believe in Jesus, but you also must be brought under the Mosaic law, including circumcision for the males. Otherwise, you cannot be acceptable to God or part of the covenant community. And the Judaizers, though, it would be hard, be hard you'd, have to, you'd have to do some understanding of the language and descriptions that Paul gives that I, I think are harder to get to or accept because the Judaizers wouldn't be guilty of licentious behavior. Uh, they were very proud of their law-keeping. Uh, certainly inwardly, they were dead as dead, and uh, pride and lust and all those things were in their heart, but outwardly, no. No, not really. So I think it's this latter group. I think it's the antinomians. I think it fits well with them. So what is an antinomian or a moral libertinist? I'll tell you. Libertines, one, um, one source I looked at, and I thought it was helpful, libertines, it defined them this way. A libertine is a person who rejects moral boundaries and lives at liberty from constraint. God's constraint. (laughs) Uh, In this case, and specifically when it comes to morality. Libertinism's lack of moral restraints, this writer says, makes it diametrically opposed to biblical Christianity. Antinomian. Um, How many of you have heard the word before? Antinomian? A few. All right, let me break it down because it's worth knowing. Anti, what's that mean? Against, yeah. Nomos, the law. An antinomian believes there are no moral laws God expects Christians to obey. Or, another version, that Christians are released by grace from, from obedience to the moral law of God. Hey, aren't we all about grace here? So, grace, it doesn't really matter how you live. You just soak in the grace. Uh, That's a perversion of the gospel, beloved. And yet there's uh, folks who would insist on such things, folks who I would identify as Christian. Uh, Where does this thinking come from? The devil! Back to my original opening That's where this nonsense, this wrong thinking, this errant thinking, this twisted, perverted thinking concerning Christ, the cross, salvation, that's where it comes from, the devil, the father of lies. He lives, beloved, to pervert and to twist the truth. And of course, because of the sinfulness of men, They buy it. They believe it. Now, some historical context. 
because at its roots, it's demonic, okay? But what was going on? Well, a couple of things. And I just pointed out so that you become informed. Why would people do this? It, you know, why would they think like that? Well, there was the prevailing philosophy of the day. A dualism, if you will, regarding spirit and matter. John MacArthur writes this. Forerunners of the dangerous second century heresy known as Gnosticism taught that spirit was good and matter was evil. Since the body is made of matter, it is intrinsically evil, they taught. Salvation ultimately involved not the redemption of the body, but deliverance from it. In other words, what salvation was really all about is getting out of this evil body. That's it, though. Just the body's evil, and everything matter is evil. Spirit is good. Thus, it taught, since the body is incurably evil, it does not matter what one does with it. Oh, isn't that convenient? Its desires can be fully satisfied, friends. A person could be a glutton, a drunkard, or an adulterer. It doesn't matter. It's the body. Do what you want with it. It was taught that all those things were inconsequential since they affected only the body, not the spirit. Where's that stuff come from? The pit of hell! Gnosticism, and a writer concerning Gnosticism, so it became... These were the seeds of Gnosticism in Paul's days. They became full-blown Gnosticism as we know it later on. Writing of Gnosticism, he says, anything done in the body, even the grossest sin, has no meaning because real life exists in the spirit realm only. Well, there you go. All right. So, you know all that stuff? I don't know what you guys are so worked up about, all this stuff about righteousness and, you know, putting off sin. That's all done in the body, guys. You know, that's, you're, you're missing it. It doesn't matter how you live. You want to sleep with that person? Do it. What's it? No big deal. You see? Paul also, probably no doubt, because of his strong teaching on grace, and that grace overcomes all of our sin, because it does, and that God provides more and more grace even when we sin for those that are his, that are his children, to cover them and to keep them in their right standing before him, to preserve them in their salvation and to bring them through to the end where he will glorify them and perfect them. There was, and his, and his teaching that the law cannot save you because it can't. All of those strong teachings which are good teachings, those got twisted, those got perverted, so Paul had to say in Romans 6, 1 through 2, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Why is he asking those questions and why is he answering them? Because others were insisting that was the case. And yet, identifying as followers of Christ. You with me? By the way, if you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that seven-part message on Romans 6, 1 through 14 that I titled, We Died to Sin. I encourage you to do it. It's on the uh, website. 
These antinomians, beloved, they believed in a false gospel, just like the Judaizers. A twisted gospel, a perverted gospel. It had Christ, but not the real Christ. It had the cross, but not the real cross. It was Christian in name only, not in reality. So look about, think about the strategies of the enemy. You got one group over here, the Antinobians, the moral libertines. They're subtracting from the gospel. They're trying to empty the gospel out of its power, of its purpose, of its purifying effect on the life of the child of God. You got them. And then you got on the other side of the scale, you got the Judaizers. They're looking to add to the gospel, pour more things onto it. Christ isn't enough. Just confusion, twisting. And, and I have to tell you, the reason this works, like I said before, I'm just going to say it, right? Why does this work? Why don't, why don't people go, no way, man, that's totally kooky, crazy. I reject that, right? Well, when it comes to the antinomian, it appeals to the lust of men. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you saying that I can have Christ and still live my sinful life freely and willingly and happily? Is that what you're saying? I think I'll give you an ear. And on the other side, I told you about this, the Judaizers, well, that appeals to the pride of men because that says, oh yeah, Christ did something to save you, certainly, but you, my friend, need to do something too to complete the process. That way, in the end, you can say, hey, I had a part to play in my salvation. And that appeals to the pride of men. And Satan knows that. And so he organizes his strategies accordingly. We're almost done. For many, one more time, back to the passage. Oh, by the way, oh, one more quote. So this is Mac, just so that we can bring it full forward. He says, the same spirit of antinomian libertinism lives on today. Boy, that's the truth. There are those in the contemporary church who teach that saving faith need not result in a life of holiness. Did you pray the prayer? Jesus, save me. Did you do it? You're good. Uh, anything after that, I mean, yeah, if you want to do the whole follow Christ thing and all that, I mean, you know, and get all serious, good, that's good for you, good on you. But in the end, you're still saved. I live with my, uh, my girlfriend, though, and we have a physical relationship. That's it. Did you profess faith in Christ? Yeah, I mean, I did it when I was, I don't know, I was like nine or ten, I don't remember. Oh, you're fine, you're good. You're good. Don't worry about, I mean, yeah, it's probably, I mean, I think somewhere it says something about, you probably, it's probably not a good idea. You see what I'm saying? And obviously I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, but I'm not either. Yeah, you don't, you can just go on with your lust. You can go on with your greed. You don't really have to change. That's not part of the equation. You're good. I mean, if you want to change, yeah. But you're good. That's a lie. That's a lie. So even though we're not buying into some dualistic philosophy, 
of, a, of the Greek culture about spirit and matter, Satan's just, he repackages it for a new generation and spins it another way, but the same thing's there. Antinomian libertinism, it's alive and well today in the Christian world. 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. In other words, regardless of what they might say, their end is destruction, regardless of where they claim they're headed. Their God is their belly. I'll get to that. But the NASB translates it this way, their God is their appetite. And it's not the one that hungers for hamburgers. Regardless of who they insist their God is, their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So in contrast to those that Paul wants them to keep their eyes on, who walk according to the example that they had in Paul and Timothy, these people that Paul had told them about before, their walk, their behavior, their conduct, their lifestyle, demonstrate that they are not allies of the cross, but instead enemies of it. One writer says, opposition to the cross of Christ might take various forms, but here, right here in Philippians 3, 18 through 19, the cause was the opponent's lifestyle. Accordingly, those who deliberately indulge in sin, deliberately, that's different than the Christian who's fighting the good fight and who sins and then repents and then pursues Christ and then, yeah, sins again and then repents and pursues Christ and begins to be changed in that process little by little for the glory of Christ. That's very different than the one who indulges willingly and repeatedly in sin. Those who deliberately indulge in sin and repudiate the will of God, they deny all the cross of Christ stands for. In 1 John 3, 8, I went through that letter too. Beautiful letter. So good. Bibles. There's nothing better than the Bible, guys, on earth. The Apostle John wrote, whoever makes a practice of sinning, in 1 John 3, 8, is of the devil. Is that hard to understand? For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. You say you're a friend of the cross? He came through the cross to destroy the works of the devil. To obliterate sin. To render it powerless. What are you doing? What are you talking about? You live as an enemy of the cross. Application. 
I, I, I will be giving this even more thought. It will come back, because this is where, this is fun part, right? Like, okay. And you might think of better ways to apply this to yourself. I trust that you do that. I trust that the Spirit of God works in your heart, and he'll come up with way better ways than this guy can to apply the passage to you. Yeah? But I will take the advantage of the opportunity here. What does your lifestyle as a Christian say about the cross? What does it say? Is it, a, is, it a, is it a daily dying to sin and living for him in the newness of life that one finds in the work, the saving and sanctifying work that Christ did on the cross for his people? Or does it, is it saying something altogether not true, a lie? Does your life by the way you behave, stand in opposition to the cross of Christ? Does it affirm, does your life affirm, and maybe it does, but does it affirm all that the cross stands for? Or does it in any way, in any way deny it? In any way. And, and I mentioned sexual sin, but just don't think about that. That's so easy for us. Well, I, I'm married so I don't do that stuff. Okay, there's a lot of other, and may, I hope you don't, but there's a lot of other ways that you might be denying the cross. Living in a way that's conflicting to people, other Christians, saying things about the cross that aren't true by the way you live your life. I mean, I, I hope I hope and pray none of you are like, oh yeah, you can sin all you want, but I'm making application now, right? I don't, if, if any of you are libertines, antinomian, well, I don't think you'll stay here very long. I don't, think, I don't know how you could last here. But there's, there's variations of this, right? So you may not be to that extreme, but on the spectrum, you may have bought into, to one degree or another, the influence, the pernicious influence of the antinomian spirit and the moral libertine spirit that we're surrounded by in our world. Christians professing one thing and then living a life that denies it. Here's my last thing. I know I'm over, but someday you'll have a new pastor and you, the first thing you should do with him is you just tell him, you better finish on time, buddy, okay? You better finish on, don't even come in here with that nonsense, all right. And you just get them right from the start. You just get them under control. That's how you do it. Me, I'm hard to control. You know what I mean? I'm hard. I've been here from the beginning. What are you going to do? And I get that. So get the next guy. All right. Pernicious influencers are everywhere, beloved. They're everywhere. But how did Paul deal with the pernicious influence for the church at Philippi? Did he say, you guys, listen, you need to move to a deserted island or hide in an underground bunker? No. No. He told them to fix their eyes on those Christians who imitated the Christianity that Paul lived. Moms and dads. Are you one of those Christians? That Paul would tell other Christians to keep their eyes on, that he would tell your children? I, 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 I hope, that's your, I hope that's, your, that's your aim. That's your goal, that you're striving to show your children Christ. But I think, because I was, am a parent, but raised kids, 
I think sometimes a lot of our energies are put on trying to keep them away from all the pernicious influences. And, and look, there's a place for stuff and age and appropriate. Don't, don't put words in my mouth. But I find that there's a lot of energy poured into there. But then as far as mom and dad, being that godly influence, showing their kids that Christ is not just a Sunday thing. He is the thing. He is the thing. He is everything. He's not just something you fit into your week if you have time left over. That he is great and worthy of our lives and our praise. And again, yeah, that doesn't mean that the parents don't sin, but then they say, and look at this. We can go to our Savior and we find forgiveness in him, which only makes us long to live for him even more. Is that, is that where the bulk of your energies are, are being put into? That my pattern of life is a life that will capture, could capture my children's hearts for Christ. It will show him truly as he is. I'll tell you something. There's more power than that in that. Because once they get a hold of him, once they see him for who he is, and, and, and they're seeing it in you as parents, man, it's consuming. It pushes out all the other junk. But if your only aim is to keep out all the other junk, it just always seems to find its way back in. So he says, don't, I'm not telling you to run from it. Where would they even go? It's all around. But he says, listen, church, keep your eyes on those Christians that are living and following the same pattern that you have seen in us, living for Christ, glorying in Christ, pursuing Christ's likeness, wanting more of Christ. Father, help us all. Help us all. Do your work in our hearts, even now. In Christ's name, amen.